Good morning and welcome everyone and thank you for joining me. My name is Kareem Kanji. This is my podcast. A podcast is Welcome with Kareem Kanji. Really excited that you guys could join me today. Today's episode, I speak with author and professor Frederick Kaufman. Frederick has written the brand new book, The Money Plot, a history of currencies, power to enchant, control, and manipulate. It might sound a tad boring to you, but it is a fascinating read, and this is a fascinating conversation. So um, Professor Kaufman and I, we talk about barter, we talked about gold, we talked about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, we talked about the gold standard, uh, just a fascinating conversation. Um, and really what drew me to want to speak with Professor Kaufman was just this whole idea of how, as a really as a global society, we've all agreed that these coins and these this paper currency actually has value when really when you take a look at it why it has value has really nothing to do with gold because no one's on the gold standard anymore we talk a little bit about uh, uh, how U.S. President Nixon on August Friday the 13th in 1971 basically told the world F you, we're not going to uh, honor your American dollars and give you gold for it. It's we're 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 not on the gold standard anymore. And so it's like, why have we all agreed to this whole concept and idea of money? And it's it's just fascinating. So enjoy this conversation, and if you could. Please, if you haven't already, subscribe. I really would appreciate a rating, a review, especially on Apple Podcasts. It helps this podcast uh, become discoverable by more and more people. So thank you for that. And here's my conversation with professor and author of The Money Plot, Frederick Kaufman. How are you? Where are you? What's going on? Uh, I'm doing well. Uh, we are. I'm in uh, Toronto. Uh, Colder. Yeah, but not. You know what? <laughs> not as cold as it could be. You know, so I, I go outside and my face doesn't freeze. Um, <laughs> which uh, which troubles me because it just means that uh, it's it's coming. Yeah, you know, but uh, everything is good. Everyone's keeping safe and healthy in uh, New York. I got vaccinated on Monday. Oh, excellent. Professor, Professor Fred. Professor, is that why? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Kenny Professor. That's why we were able to, to, uh, yeah. I got Moderna. I got Moderna on Monday. Okay. Uh, I literally did not feel it. I, I literally didn't think they gave it to me, honestly. I felt nothing. 
And then I felt like I had fucking COVID. (laughs) (laughs) Right after that. Yeah. No, like, no, no, like nothing. 24 hours. And then like, like I'm going to faint. I'm nauseous. I'm dying. My hands are clammy. And it lasted like three hours and then poof. So weird. So weird. And, uh, and then I get the second dose, uh, in a month. Okay, so did did you just get jabbed like recently? Monday. Oh, John, Monday. Monday. Yeah. Look at that. What a week it has been for not just the country, but for you. Oh, well, let me tell you this fucking country. <laughs> you, what is that? What a disaster, man. You well, uh, we're, you know, us us people on the outside are are fascinated with what happens. At these savages, it's like, look at these savages. Like, what are they doing? I know it's like, you, we forget, you know, when people first started observing America, they were astounded at the animalistic quality of these frontiersmen and, and crazies who fanatics and idiots, like they thought they're just animals. And, and like, then you forget about it for a while, but then it comes back and you realize that it's just a bunch of yahoos who live here. It's just, it's extraordinary that 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 election result happened considering it's like, it's just crazy. And I mean, and it goes on anyway, whatever. What are we talking about? What are we, what are we talking doing? About? We're not, yeah, okay. So we're not doing the election today. Yeah, no. That, that's, that's another book, another time maybe, who knows? Yeah, whatever. Sure. <laughs> I'm actually doing a lot of work on conspiracy theory right now. Is that, are, are you seriously you doing one on that? Seriously, yeah. I did a piece for the New Yorker over the summer. Okay. About, uh, you know, early, uh, early conspiracy theories, kind of the origin of the QAnon, uh, Kabbalistic, child molesting, uh, globalist intellectuals who will rule the world. And that conspiracy theory, that specific conspiracy theory, was first articulated in in 1797. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of one of these kind of like little known. Like where that conspiracy theory come from? It came from. I, I can tell you exactly where it came from. It's it's, it's fascinating. Well, and then it keeps on coming back. That's why it keeps on coming back. You know, coming. You know, it's not just McCarthyism. There were you know throughout the 19th century there were different moments where this particular conspiracy theory. You know, it's always the same one. It's the Jews and the black and the brown people and the homosexuals and and the the uh, you know the, the pedophiles and often the Catholics are in on it too Weird. and um, you know that lefties basically and, and the big problem is they want we want things like women's rights. How dare we? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the kind of it kind of shakes people up. Yeah, that that is that is nuts. What what fascinates me is that. You know, one would think, or at least I would think, you know, as you know, I, I don't study these things, but I would think like, aren't we, aren't we now educated enough? Aren't we enlightened enough? And it, and it shocks me. So sad. It's just so sad. It's just so sad. Yeah. And, and, and I, well, anyway, but that's a whole other discussion about like the education system always bears the brunt of so much of this. Why aren't people taught better? Um, I don't know. Is that is it really up to like us to stop? You know, like I don't know where this shit comes from. Yeah, yeah. If people, I actually think it's, I just think it's I honestly, honestly, I just think it's a very primitive strain of racism. I think that's kind of at the bottom of it. Oh, it is. But, it is fascinating. Know. That's for sure. Um, very interesting book. 
as uh, as well. You got the same one. Look at that. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And thank and listen, thank you so much for asking me on. I appreciate it. No, no problem. Um, it was interesting because uh, one of the reasons I, I, I got you on, and, and I want to I want to ask you this. I read a bit about not the specific uh, currency, but sort of the idea of these types of currencies. So I'll, I'll give you a little bit of background on myself. Uh, so I'm Muslim, and uh, our our sect is called Ismailis. I don't know if you've heard of them. Maybe yes. Okay, so I've heard of them, but that's about that's the end of it. I've heard of the Ismaili sect. Okay, wonderful. So, um, you know, there there's periods of time in history. There's and there's this one uh, period, uh, particularly uh, called the Fatimid Empire, the Fatimid period. Um, I can't remember exactly the time frame, uh, whether it was, you know, what, what Western historians might call the Dark Ages, maybe. But uh, uh, family members of mine came into possession of these coins. 10th to 12th century. 10th to 12th century. Okay, yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, so we they came into possession of these Fatimid coins, uh, and on the coins, you know, would be um, not necessarily, they weren't necessarily tied to a country, but they were tied to, you know, the, this, this group of Muslims um, and tied to their, uh, the Imam uh, 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 of that time. And I, yeah. I, and so that's what sort of drew me to your book. And I, and I was curious about, you know, how these, currencies get developed and the purpose. Um, now, you don't necessarily talk specifically about these particular coins, but go ahead. Let me, let me ask you, let me ask you. Yeah. So have you, you've seen these coins? I personally have not seen them. Our family in, in London came in possession uh, of literally hundreds of them via an auction. So you're, so as I understand, uh, Muslim Islam, and I and I don't I don't I'm not a student of Islam. Sure, yeah. If I understand it, uh, the coins I imagine do not have images of human. Correct. That would not be appropriate. Sure, on yeah, a, yeah, on, you're right. You're right. Muslim coin. You're right. There would be sort of verses from the Quran would be on there. Yeah. It would have like the name of the Imam would be on there. Right. So that's what I'm wondering. I'm wondering what you, what is it? And I think, I think it's, I think it's absolutely fast. This, you see, this is, we can talk about this yeah. at greater length, but, but this is very, uh, kind of aligns very much with what I'm saying about language and money. So, I mean, so tell, tell me about that. Why, why do these, uh, whether it's faith communities or whether it's people in certain regions or certain groups of people, um, Tell tell me about that language and, and currency and things of that nature. Fascinating. Well, I think that okay. This is I'm just kind of I'm just trying to get I'm trying to gather my thoughts yeah. because this is a very big and deep question, and because I'm not a student of Islam, of I don't course, want to sure. start outing off about it. Yeah, yeah. So what what, in, what interests me specifically about uh, about the coin? And, and of course, this is a radio thing. This is not a a, a, a video. Not thing, a video. Right? No, no. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so what interests me about these 10th to 12th century coins is that is that this is a moment in the world where you see the the real birth of money culture. 
right? That in fact, that, that the Romans and the ancient world, they had their coinage and they, they had their banks and they had their, their credit. But it's during the medieval period and, and also during, during the ancient period, during the you know, time of the ancient Rome, of course, we're talking about, which is about a thousand years before that. There is, you know, you could say that the, the sun never sets on Rome, that it was a huge empire, that it's global, yeah. right? But really, our, the understanding of money that we have today, the idea of a credit economy, the idea of a, of a, of a, of a global trade, this all happens this, right in that moment from the 10th to the 12th century. That's kind of the key turning point, that, that kind of medieval period. When in fact, all of a sudden, you have very large banks, you have huge credit arrangements, you, you start seeing oh. corporations, you start seeing small groups of investors, you start seeing very complicated insurance agreements, all of wow. these things. Back then. Yeah, it, it, yeah, in the 10th, exactly. And now, of course, at that, at that point, what's so interesting also is that that particular 10th to 12th century is a fulcrum. In the sense that if you look at the year 500, look, now let's talk about Europe. Sure. If you look at the year 500, the, these people who are inhabiting Europe are these extremely pale, primitive savages. A thousand years later, they're ruling the earth. These savages all of a sudden are beating everybody else up and are colonizing and have take, basically taken over the world. So. How did that happen? Yeah. Because around the year, really around the year 500 to about the year five, 1000, the empire, the Muslim empires, the, uh, the, the Ethiopian empires in Africa, look farther south, uh, farther to the east, the Asian empires, and then of course in India, those are the great bastions of world culture. Yeah. Not Europe, yeah. not Europe, not, not at all. But as I say, by 1500, all of a sudden that's transformed. So of course, in that middle period, when you have this explosion of international, of international trade, right? Everybody starts minting coins. Everybody starts minting coins and they're minting it. Uh, and, and this is part of how we actually even know that history because Many things from that period, you know, there's some architecture, but almost all the written documents, they're, they're very hard to come by. The coins, however, last. And so we can we look at what they say. We look at who the emperor is. We can date them. And so we can begin to put together this extraordinarily complicated set of years. You know, the Byzantine Empire, all sorts of history is happening during this period. And numismatics is something something that I had. You know, when I was a little boy, I collected coins for fun, and then I forgot about it. And then all of a sudden, I started reading these crazy scholarly essays about numismatics, and it just blew my mind <laughs> because I realized that these guys, these coin collectors, and these collections they had put together were actually defining the way we understood the medieval period. Wow. More than anything else. And so, of course, now you have your family coins, and it's so it's so fascinating to me that that likely they do not have faces on them, but they have words on yes. them. And of course, this is, this is such an essential idea in the history of telling stories and exchanging money. Because my book really is about 
these two separate concepts, telling stories and exchanging money and how they're actually one concept, how they're actually the same. That's kind of the project of my book yeah. is to put them together and then to follow the developments in each over time. So for instance, as story develops from, from you know, earliest simple metaphors to epic, you know, to romance, to novel, to postmodern literature, the same, oddly enough, like bizarrely, as, as the more I looked at it, money also advances through these through these stages, right? And so putting a face on a coin is a fascinating notion. It's a fascinating idea. Why would you put your face on a coin? So we have to look back at the history of coinage to understand why one might do this and why one might not do this. So the other thing we have to remember is that the history of coinage is not the history of money. They're, they're two right. very separate. Nor, nor is it the history of markets because there's a lot of money pre-market, right? Coins really only appear uh, on earth. The, the, the coin we think of as a coin, a precious metal disc that does not have a hole in the middle. In other words, we see kind of copper coins that can be strung on deeds, yeah. which are kind of in the line of what had been the global reserve currency in primitive times, which are the shells, yeah. the shells that are, that are polished and then can be worn as beads around the body. That's the first global reserve currency. And then of course, after that, we have different kinds of money appear, such as livestock is money, such as grain becomes money, Eggs. right? And and of course, yes, eggs. But I was going to kind of look at the darker side of this. Slaves uh, mm. are money. People are money, and uh, and also, unfortunately, there is a very long history of women as money, as concubines, as payment. And I spend a lot of time in the book looking at marriage and the money arrangements in marriage, right. and how this is kind of a sublimation. Like wedding ritual is a sublimation of the fact that actually the woman was the money. Yeah. Originally, right? And the payment. Anyway, but that's a whole part of the that's a whole part of the book about primitive money. Coinage as we understand it as a precious metal stamped disc appears for the first time between about 400 and 500 BC in ancient Greece, right? In 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 a part of in what's called Lydia. Lydia. Okay. Right? In in Lydia. And the, the original coins and of course this happens at the same time as the birth of tragedy. So there are two things that happen simultaneously which completely transform the world. One is the precious metal coin, mm -hmm. which, which really is probably the most successful metaphor in the history of the world. Hey, this stands for something. And like that, that's, that's, right. that happened that's at right. 400 BC and we're st we, still, we still believe it. Like you give somebody a quarter, right? Whatever, and it's like, well, that's, what other metaphor has lasted that long? I don't know. I mean, an actual thing which we use and we believe in. And um, so the first precious metal coin occurs around 400, 500 BC. And it is made of electrum, which is a gold silver mixture that naturally occurs in this part of uh, really this ancient kingdom of Lydia, which is uh, Western, uh, Southwestern Turkey today. Okay. Right. And uh, the king who has these coins is a guy named King Alyattes. 
nobody's heard this guy's name, but everybody's heard his son's name. His son's name was Croesus. Okay. You know, the richest Croesus, right? Because his, his, his son had all the money, right? But these first precious metal coins do not have Aliati's face on them. Sure. They have, they have a symbol for him. They have a symbol for him, which is a lion rampant, uh, kind of roaring, you know, out with it, with its claws, okay. with its claws and it's only much later in the history of money that people start saying, oh, this is like Facebook. This is a way of, right? This is a way of communicating and doing social media. And by the time that the Romans come around, that's all they do. Everything they do, they stamp it on money and send it out. Because these guys are printing bronze denariuses. There was the Roman reserve currency. And the history you can that's how so much of roman history is known is through looking at treaties and generals and emperors and tyrants through the coinage wow right now by the same token what you were talking about here then we come to the 10th 12th century right and now there's everybody's making making coinage Everybody is coining coins. In fact, that, that's kind of the history of the dollar. The dollar comes from this word thaler. And those are originally minted in Germany in the 16th century. These beautiful, very famous silver coins that, that, that all of a sudden became popular all the way across Europe. But it's just so fascinating that, that we have to understand that the money reflects the culture so intensely and the stories and the mores of that culture that the Roman money then of course is all about the individual. And of course it is tragic. Coinage is the most tragic form of money because what you, if you look at the ancient world, all these emperors, they put their name on the coin, they're the great one. And then of course, a couple of years later, the next guy comes along, kills them, melts down, all their coins yeah. and stamp a new face on it. The new so face. it's actually the most, he writes the most ironic and tragic form uh, of, of money. Again, and again, the same metal is just melt it down and put the next guy, stamp the next guy on it. And so in your case, what we see in Islam is that there's a prohibition against, uh, against using the human form in art. This uh, right. Isn't is, yeah. if I, if I understand it correctly. Yeah. And so of course there's a, there's a great, problem, which is that we want to expand ourselves through money and expand our culture, but we can't do it personally. So therefore, what we have to use is text. And so that's, and so what you have is, you know, Islam is one of the great religions of the text, just like Judaism is one of the great religions of the, of the text. Christianity is, of course, much more focused on embodiment, right? And, 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 pers and personhood, yeah. very focused on that. And so therefore, what we're seeing is a, is a completely different form of money ah, and coinage. That, that is fascinating. That is fascinating. That, that gives me a new uh, appreciation that, you know, when, when we're allowed to go into museums and, and I look at this, I'll have a, uh, I, I, another level of understanding of, uh, of that. That's, that is just fascinating. Uh, another interesting, go ahead, go ahead. No, you go. You, an, another personal story. Go on forever. Yeah. I happen to work for, wait for it, a barter company. And uh, as, as I'm reading, I think it's in the early part of your book where, you know, you read this and, and I think, I don't know if you, you outright say it, but it's in there that 
you know, one would think that barter was uh, the earliest form um, of currency or something like that. I, I, I don't know if that's if I've worded that correctly, but I think you show in, in your book that uh, barter even comes after currency. I found that fascinating. Yeah, this is this is one of the great misconceptions about money in the history of money. And it's it's a misconception for an excellent reason. And that's because probably the you know the the greatest thinker about money, uh Adam Smith, yeah, created that myth. And, you know, and okay. he writes The Wealth of Nations and it's it's published in 1776, easy to remember that date. And he uh he's looking at a nation, Great Britain, of shopkeepers, and everybody's, you know exchanging. And so, of course, to him, he's like looking at this, he's trying to think, where did money come from? So he figures, well, this is obviously a shortcut to truck and barter, because that's what he sees. He sees, oh, this is all about truck and barter. This is about labor and capital and what we're going to do and how we're going to distribute wealth and where, where. And that's what he's seeing. So he says, barter comes first. And then all of a sudden we have a shortcut. Instead of lugging your potatoes around town to buy some moccasins, you can just use this handy dandy little metaphor and every, right. And it's a beautiful idea. And most people on Wall Street and bankers and everybody believes it to this day. Uh, now this has actually been disproven, completely disproven. Yeah. Uh, and it was proven about really about a hundred years ago uh, because these anthropologists and ethnographers of the early 20th century were like, okay, uh, Let's go see it. Let's find it. Let's find it. And they went all over the earth and they looked at all these quote unquote primitive societies in Africa and Asia and in New Guinea in particular, all over. And nowhere did they find any barter whatsoever. In each case, they find symbolic exchange of something that looks kind of like money. It looks and smells like money, even if it's wampum or if it's, uh, uh, you know, feathers yeah or if it's a gong, or if it's a jar, if it's a stone, it's always a symbolic entity that is then exchanged and used for security and used for status. And so, so all of a sudden it's kind of like, we realize that barter only occurs in post-currency environments. For instance, prison, prison economies, right? Oh yes, right? interesting. Exactly, so it's like the, we know, they understand completely what money is, but they don't really have it. So now they're gonna trade weapons and drugs and cigarettes and. That's their barter. Or we'll, we'll see it also in, in uh, war economies. Like when the currency has gone to hell, when you know it's 2 billion marks to buy a loaf of bread, all of a sudden, again, we start trading cigarettes, we start trading shoes, right? So a lot of people say to me, you know, what's the future of money? Is it Bitcoin? Wow. Is, it, uh, is it crypto? And of course, I, I like what I, we can get to crypto later, but yeah. crypto is actually a very primitive form of money. <laughs> We can talk about no, that later. Okay. It's an extremely primitive form. The actual future of money is kind of more like what you're doing, is a community-based barter form of, you know, we live together. Wow. I'm going to provide you with the cappuccino. You're going to provide me with, uh, with the shelter, you know, whatever it happens to be. It's a much more advanced and much more nuanced form of social interaction when we're using barter. So in fact, it's, it's kind of, uh, Adam Smith got it backwards. Barter doesn't come first, barter comes last. Barter comes last when you run out of the money or there's no value. That is- Right, when you realize it's a fiction, when you realize that mo mo money is a fiction, it's kind of like this whole idea of, like, well, first of all, there's this whole notion of like 
the candidacy of Andrew Yang for president, right? He runs uh, on the Democratic yeah, ticket. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, he tries to become the candidate. And he, part of his platform is universal basic income, right? And of course, my, my son, who's 21, is like, yeah, I want universal basic income. I'm voting for Andrew Yang. He would have been laughed off the stage of, of actual Democrats in the 1970s or the 1980s. You know, not, I mean, he's even farther to the left of these crazy communists. But all of a sudden, this time, it's like, you know, maybe there's something to that universal basic income. It's kind of like everybody, you know, we take it for granted that every child has a right to go to school. For free, actually, public education. Yeah. That's something new. Uh, that, you know, then there's this idea that, that the UN has, this crazy idea that every child kind of has a right not to starve to death, that there is a, there's a right to food, you know, that everybody should have, that's not eating steak and eggs every day, but everybody should not be starving. Everybody should have a basic food that, that's guaranteed to them. That means that we're a human culture. Right. Like, look at what's happening yeah. in Ethiopia right now in the Tigray region. I mean, these people are waging a civil war by starving Crazy. the region. Yeah. And it's just it's just it's horrifying. It's literally horrifying that that's what they're using to bring a region to its knees. And we can see the great evil there. And so we understand kids have a right to food. Yep. Kids have a right to shelter. Kids have a right to education. Why shouldn't everybody have a right to money? Right. But like that freaks people out like wait a second what does this mean yeah yeah that is what does that is it's um what what are you what are your thoughts on 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 basic income oh i think it's i think it's brilliant i i I actually do and i i think that doesn't it doesn't i don't think there's any great evil to it i think that i i think that there are people for instance now uh there are real social problems in the world, obviously. Course, and a lot yeah. of them have to do with people who, who really aren't educated and who can't work and maybe are mentally disabled or, or something like this, right? Uh, those people need to be able to live in a decent sort of way and pay in a decent sort of way. When we're talking about universal basic income, we're not talking about everybody's a millionaire. We're not saying a chicken in every pot every night. We're saying, you know, you've got, let, let's get off the street Yes. You know, let's get off the street and let's try to have decency uh, among us. I, you know, I am not going to ask for my share of universal basic income, nor would I qualify for my share of basic universal income. And I'm going to work just as hard and be just as ambitious as I was before. I'm not going to say, oh, great. I get 50 bucks a week. I'm done. <laughs> you know? yeah. I thought, so it's not like, you know, the person who's going to actually take it is a person who really probably needs it. Really needs it. It's probably better for everybody if they get it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to, I've always been fascinated with um, this whole idea. Now, I'm I'm not old enough to understand sort of the gold standard, but I do understand that there is no more gold standard, apparently. and so, you know, when you take a look at money, I was trying to search for a bill, but I got no cash anywhere. I just got cards, right? Um, and, and I was thinking, are we, have we just agreed as a society that, this, that these pieces of paper and that these coins, or I, I think, I can't remember, I believe it's in your book that even less than 10% of money is actually cash. 
they're just like digits on a computer somewhere? Yeah, it doesn't exist. It only very little of the money in the world exists yeah. in physical form. Most money is invisible. How, how, when did we all agree that this is, we were all going, this was, it's fascinating because you've got in, in the States, two sides of a political spectrum that apparently hate each other, but we've, we've all somehow agreed around the world yeah. to follow this premise that pieces of paper are worth something. It's the greatest fiction ever. And that doesn't mean it's not true. It's just, it's way beyond Islam and Christianity and Judaism and Hinduism. Like everybody believes in the dollar. They all believe in the dollar. Everybody, yeah. in the atheists too, we all believe in the dollar, right? It's like, it's just kind of brilliant. And so why do we believe in the dollar? And I, that's a lot of what I'm trying to figure out in, in for the past seven years. And, and, and this book is a bit of that, I hope, is money really is a story we're trying to tell ourselves to make sense of the world and to give ourselves some sort of security moving into the future so that the future makes sense. In other words, just, just like we do with narrative, we tell ourselves a story about what we're gonna do tomorrow, who we are, that partner who I'm living with, who is that person? We have to tell a story so that it all kind of makes sense and comes together, right? And money is the embodiment of that story, a story. And like, so if you look at very primitive money, the earliest sort of money, this comes, as I, as I point out in the book, this comes from these, these bizarre little beads that were found in Kenya about 40,000 years ago that were actually made from, of all things, ostrich eggs. Yeah. Why were they made from ostrich eggs? Well, the ostrich has the largest egg of any animal, and these egg, these black-necked ostriches from Africa have eggs which hold about a quart and a half of liquid. And so, obviously... These people, and 40,000 years ago, honestly, in the great scheme of things, ain't that long ago, right? These are kind of advanced people. They're making art. They have advanced culture. It's not just, you know, they have groups of families and other people. They have, they really have rituals. They have marriage ritual. They have all sorts, and they have funereal ritual. In other words, they have a, a very strong sense of belief. These are very sophisticated humans. And what they're doing is using these ostrich eggs to hold their fresh water, to hold their nuts, to hold their berries, to hold their fish. It, it's a form of security for the future. And then what they do is these ostrich eggs, the thing which held and contained security for the future, when it's smashed and made into beads that are worn around your body, this is your own security for the future. This is your own idea that right? I will be safe. I will be secure, right? And I can also, because of that, I can begin to speculate because of course the history uh -huh. of gambling and the history of money are very close. Oh, are very close. From the very beginning, people are, are, are shaking the dice. You know, what's going to happen in the future? Because money is all about speculating about the future. People always ask, what should I be holding? Should I be holding stocks or bonds or Bitcoin or gold or what, what should, you know, a SPAC? What should I be doing? And, 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 and this is all about, that's the basic function of money. What will the future, what will the future bring? Okay. And so money, so what is the future? Let's talk about the yeah, future yeah. for a second. One thing we can say for sure about the future, it's invisible. Sure. And that's always, that's always been one of the essential 
like qualities of the future is the fates, right? The fates are blind, right? We do not know what's coming up in the future. And so money, money has always been, has this strange connection with the invisible. And so that's part of why we're okay with money, you know, Think about your, how much money you have in your wallet. You know, so maybe I have a couple of hundred bucks sitting over there and I have some credit cards. But that's like, that's not all my money. I don't have money under the mattress. Most of my money is invisible. Most of my money is just purely a matter of faith. Huh. And trust, money is always been- trust, even, I think, right? Faith, well, trust. In God, that's what it says. Exactly. God, trust. <laughs> that's right. That's money. Well, you, well, what is the dollar? Because that was the original question, the gold standard. So the thing about yes, gold yes, yes. is gold is basically saying, gold is basically saying, this is why you can trust, because we got this solid thing, this, this gold thing that you can trust in. And that's going to be the quote unquote underlying value of this paper money. And so this has been one of the longest ranging modern battles of money. And that's why I, one of my chapters is called Money Wants to Be Free. Now that doesn't mean everybody gets money, but it means money wants to be free of any underlying value holding it down. Money wants to be as free as freewheeling and as free ranging as possible. And the people who know this best of all are the bankers. The people who know this best of all are the people in finance, they are they love the fact that there is no underlying value to money because when there is something that's an underlying value to money, it's holding money down, it's holding their profits back, right? So really, we, we these are not crazy ideas of a poet. Well, actually, they are crazy ideas of a poet, but the poets are called bankers because the bankers are the ones who are the greatest poets of all. They are the ones who can manipulate this metaphor. Yeah metaphor better than anybody. So for a long time, uh, money has fought this battle. And a lot of the book is how money has been able to escape from gold, how money has been able to escape from gold. And I could go on to, you know, the 17th century and the medieval period, and the 19th century, and William Jennings Bryan trying to argue that mankind is being crucified on a cross of gold, or then we can talk about even the crazies today who think we should bring back the gold standard, right? But in fact, the whole origin for the book, the whole reason I wrote this book is I became fascinated with the weekend of uh, Friday the 13th of August, 1971. That was originally going to be the entire book. The entire book was going to be what happened on the weekend of Friday the 13th, August, of uh, 13th of August, 1971, until Sunday the 15th, because that was the weekend when Richard Nixon floated the dollar, when he finally disconnected it forever from any underlying value. Uh, what he realized was that there was seven times the number of paper dollars out there in the world than the United States had gold to cover it. At that point, there was a fixed exchange rate. Uh, every ounce of gold was 30, worth $35, okay? This had been, uh, this had been uh, put into law or just in 1940. Uh, 1944, 
at the Bretton Woods Agreement. Maybe it's 1945, I'll have to check. The Bretton Woods Agreement. What had happened was all the European currencies were in the tank. The lira was in the tank. The German mark was in the tank. The Japanese yen is in the tank. The pound is in the tank after World War II. And also, during World War II, since all the people in Europe were freaked out about what was going to happen, they kept on sending gold secretly to the United States in ships, sending all the gold to the United States. They say, you know, here's some gold from France. Here's some more gold from England. And they kept on, so United States had all the gold, basically. It's holding all, there's never been a country that had more gold than the United States did in the aftermath of World War II. And so the United States said, look, this is what we're going to do. We're going to set the dollar at 35 bucks an ounce of gold. And then you can peg all the other global currencies to the dollar. And that's what they did. So they, so in other words, the dollar was the one steady fixed thing yeah. at $35 an ounce of gold. And all the other currencies floated at different exchange rates compared to the dollar. So the dollar stabilized the world economy at that point. But there is a problem. That's how the dollar became the global reserve currency that it is today. Probably not going to last too much longer, but that's how it became the global reserve currency. But there was one problem, which is that if you are, if you happen to be, let's say the sovereign bank of England or the sovereign bank of Germany, you, you don't need to hold gold in your vault. All you have to do is hold dollars in your vault because you, whenever you like, can say, okay, I'm going to go to the quote unquote gold window, right? And I'm going to, tra- I'm going to exchange my dollars for gold. And that stabilized the world economy. If I have lira, I'm a person, I can't exchange it for gold. And if I'm holding dollars as a citizen, I can't exchange it for gold. But if I'm a sovereign bank of Canada and the Canadians were kind of onto this early, the Canadians were onto this early, they can, the sovereign banks could switch. And because of the, because of the 1960s, there is, there is this kind of weird confluence of high unemployment and high inflation. At the same time, uh, there's stagnation in, in growth. This is the famous stagflation that happened in the 1960s. And the problem was uh, the dollar was getting a little bit uh, shaky and and the other sovereign nations were strengthening their economy and they wanted to test the dollar. And so right around the late 60s and early 70s, they started saying, okay, I'm going to exchange my dollars for gold, testing the United States. And the week before July, uh, Friday the 13th of August, 1971, France and England and Canada wanted to exchange a lot of their gold. I mean, a lot of their dollars, they were holding their sovereign banks for gold and there just wasn't enough gold. And the United States knew this and their secretary of the treasury, John Connolly, very interesting guy. He had been in the limousine when Kennedy was shot. He had been the democratic governor of Texas, uh, and of course, the only Treasury Secretary of the United States who would eventually go bankrupt, John Connolly, a very interesting figure. Um, John Connolly was Nixon's Secretary of Treasury, Treasury, Treasury Secretary, and he basically said to Nixon, "We got to flip the dollar." And Nixon was like, "What, what are you? What are you even talking about?" He's like, "Look, we we just got to say to these people, no, we're not. We're going to close the gold window. We're done." And uh, Nixon was like. Okay, 
<laughs> and so he went on national, yeah he went on national television on the 15th and he basically said you know we're not going to we're not going to convert the dollar anymore sorry do what you like but we're not doing it just like right? that like that just like that and it was over he said it on tv and it was over there is no law that had to be passed all of a sudden it was clear that the dollar all it had to be was a story and that story was quote unquote full faith and credit of the United States. And that's all a dollar was. And, and Connolly famously went to all the leaders, you know how it's called like the group of 20 now? Yeah. At that point, it was like the group of eight or the group of 10. And he famously stood up in front of all these finance ministers from all, all the Western European nations. And, and he said, uh, uh, the dollar is our currency, but it's your problem. Huh. That, that's what he said, that's the quote. The dollar is our currency, but it's your problem. And they, they signed, they signed on. He couldn't do anything about it. It was sheer political power. They were just like, sorry, we're done. Just a story. It was just a story. Yeah, it was just a story. Like, you believe it or not, and you better believe it because, you know, you're holding a few billion of them. <laughs> yeah. And we're not extending. The window is closed. Yeah, we're done with that. That is fascinating. Then of, course, you know, then, of course, gold, of course, then starts itself rising in value and so of course gold is no longer 35 dollars an ounce no and why enlighten me a little bit why is gold so valuable is it just a, is it is that another story that we are buying into look uh the, yes there is no reason why gold is money literally i mean why it's shiny i think here's why gold is money it's shiny which is nice right uh when you hold it in your hand, it, it, it warms up with your hand. And so it, you can feel this kind of strange sympathy between yourself and, and the gold. And that's one, of the, that's one of the essential characteristics of money is the fact that it is an extension of the body. And so, for instance, even in that very primitive currency of the ostrich egg, right, the, the, the beads come from the egg. They used to be next to the, you know, the, the valuable water or berries or nuts. And so there's this kind of primitive contagion between what you are and what you're next to. The voodoo doll is the perfect example of this. You get some of the target subject's hair, you put it on the doll. And so when you put the pin in the doll, right, that's this kind of metaphorical contagion, right? And the same thing with like, a form of money I think we're all familiar with called the crown, right? The crown yeah. is, a, is, is a coin, right? But what is a crown? The crown is on the king's head it is, or the queen's head. It's not a part, but it's next to it, right? And so there's this weird contagion between the king and the crown and the crown and the king. So much so you don't pay taxes to the king. You can pay taxes to the crown. And this is an essential kind of metaphor in English language studies. It's called this particular kind of metaphor of what we call contiguity, things being next to each other, um, is called metonymy. Okay, so gold is has that kind of quality of you can feel your the own warmth of your own body going into it. Plus, it's malleable at a very low temperature. So again, it, you can you can shape shift it. And you can make it very early on into these shiny jewels. You can wear it when it's close to your body. You can feel it. It actually has your warmth on it. Yeah. And it's pure, no matter how 
much you melt it and no matter how much you heat it, it's pure. And of course, uh, there's this whole notion of it's being, because of this, it's very close to ideas, archaic ideas of God. So we have the golden age, the silver age, the iron age, right. and in all of the right, and of course, in all of these ages, oh, the gods were all gold then. Oh, then it was the then then the people were made of silver, right? And so there's this kind of weird, again, archaic mythology and story associated with all of the different metals. And I spend a lot of time in the book talking about those myths because those myths are are, are fascinating because in, um, they are also particularly for the metal gods, right? They're tragic. These metal gods once had their own ages and then always they get completely destroyed by the next God that comes along. Let's say the silver God, right? Destroys the, 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 the gold God and not just kills, but completely explodes it. And that always explains why they had to escape underneath the earth while, while bodies have all been shattered into dust. And it explains mining and how you have to bring that body together again. And now, of course, this leads to this kind of other kind of crazy notion, which is that uh, that's like a corporate body. In other words, what you're doing is you're taking all these little pieces and incorporating them into a larger, pure, fictive whole. And that specifically is, is kind of the ancient witchcraft art of metallurgy. When the shamans understood the secrets of fluxing with lead and heating, and the alchemists would say, you know, I've got gold. And it was absolutely shocking that, that something like this could happen, that you would come up with this pure golden thing. And of course, they were like, it's, it's a God. I, I got this one-on-one -on -one thing with God going on here. That's what um, <laughs> So that, so, you know, that's a, but that's a tough question because gold is, gold has been such a force in the human imagination for so long yeah. and it's certainly not going away. No, not, in, not anytime soon. Um, I want to talk about one more story uh, bef before we go, but uh, again, uh, the book is The Money Plot by Professor Frederick Kaufman, A History of Currency's Power to Enchant, Control, and Manipulate. Um, Professor Frederick, Bitcoin. Um, is it is it over now? Is, is 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 was that just a fad, like roller skating? Like what? Like what? What do we do about Bitcoin and and all the other cryptocurrencies? So there are thousands, right? There are thousands of cryptos out there, and they're Ethereum, and and they're certainly not going away, uh, and. Really, if we think about money as, uh, well, let, let's just talk for a second about Craig Wright. So Craig Wright uh, is this Australian, very rich man, and his doctoral dissertation, uh, unsurprisingly, is about ancient myth. And he's an expert in, in ancient mythography. Uh, and so he has now said, told the world, that in fact, under the pseudonym of Satoshi Nakamoto, that he created Bitcoin. And there is, a, we don't know if this is true. We don't know, you know if, 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 if Craig Wright is Satoshi or not, but we do know that Craig Wright is worth about 10 billion bucks. So, so you know, one way or the other, his Bitcoin, you know, he has a lot of Bitcoin. Yeah. And he also has said that he is the 
you know, he has the code for the very first Bitcoin. And he, and he has shown that to the press, the, the, the very first Bitcoin. There are a lot of very interesting things about Bitcoin, which align perfectly with, the, with money myths that, that have been common ideas about money for tens of thousands of years. But the basic idea that makes Bitcoin money is the idea of it being a coded system, a coded algorithm. So again, we were talking about that dollar. Why is this paper worth anything? Well, it's full of code. It's full of, it's full of signatures and filigree and symbols and faces and all of these things put together in a sound of like, what does this mean? Well, it means it's worth something. And so that's exactly what is happening with Bitcoin. It's this wildly complicated algorithm code that you have to put in a lot of energy to break, right? And once you break it, then you can own it. The other thing that's fascinating about Bitcoin is, and this gets back to this whole notion of medieval money and how medieval Christianity uh, was such a force in the creation of money. So let me just let me just uh, elaborate for one minute. Yes, please. Okay. Yes. So with we were talking earlier about how money is a form of speculation to try to hedge our bets about the future, right? And of course, the dream of finance is tomorrow's newspaper. Because if I have tomorrow's newspaper, I can go and bet on the horses. Yeah. Right. I can make so much money. Right. That's the dream. So the dream of finance is to know the end of the story before it ends or to know the end of the story before anybody else. Right. And that's a lot of the work these these quants on Wall Street are doing is trying to figure out a way to hedge their bet to know the end of the story before it ends. Well, in medieval Christianity, they knew the end of the story. Yeah. The end of the story was the apocalypse. Right. And these guys knew that there was going to be a fixed time in the future when time was going to end. And instead of kind of walking along into a vague future, they it, right and counting forward into a vague eternity, they knew there was a set ending. And so they were actually counting backwards. And so that's why all of a sudden, not only do you see all these timekeeping devices, not only do the monks work by the clock, not only are these extraordinary cathedrals have these extraordinary clocks, but finance itself changes and it becomes finance as we know it today. I'm going to get to Bitcoin. So in other words, the idea of a mortgage, mortgage has within it that word mort, meaning yes. debt. So a mortgage is, of course, counted backwards. You get a mortgage for your house. The first thing you know is the last day you're going to pay it. Pay it. Yes, right? yes. And you know every, right? And, and that's how money works. Right? That's how credit works. That's how finance works. That's how, that's how you get paid at the end of the hour. Everything, everything is done backwards. And it's a particular way of reading that English uh, professors know about. It's reading from the end of the story towards the beginning as opposed to the beginning towards the end. You could call it apocalyptic reading, but the fancy way of calling it is anagogical reading. Anagogical reading anagogical. is from the end to the beginning. Even the word finance, what's the hidden word in there? F-I-N, fin, the end, the end. Finance is the art and science of the end. And what happens at the end? Redemption. You redeem your money. Wow. Just, it, no, but these, these it's not... That's it, it's done on purpose. This is exactly why this the why finance revs up during the medieval. 
period, because the belief system, we were talking about belief systems, yes. align so perfectly, it aligns so perfectly with the capitalist system at that point. And again, the, what blew my mind about writing this book was the medieval period. The medieval period is really the room where it happens. Bitcoin, key to Bitcoin yeah. is that you know the Genesis block arrives in 2009. Within that Genesis block is the idea that the end is already defined. The last tranche of Bitcoin will appear in 2140. So th it is apocalyptic. It's, we're counting backwards already from the end towards the beginning. And that is the excitement of Bitcoin. The fact that there's a limited amount, that it's going to be time released, that we know when the end is, and all of a sudden it's like time to speculate, right? And so it's all about dealing with knowing the end of the story before it ends, trying to get the security, trying to store your value, trying to be secure for the future through a particular coded algorithm. This has been the idea of money since those original ostrich egg beads. So Bitcoin is really nothing new. The technology is a little bit different than making etching on beads, oh. but it's the exact same concept. That is amazing. That I, I, it's, I'm, I'm so glad I got to speak with you because well, it thank is, you, Karina. I, I feel so much more smarter. I wish we could go to bar so I could talk to my friends about what I've learned. <laughs> yeah, what I like? Why don't we go get a drink now, Kareem? I, I hate this thing. It's like, well, you know, next year let's talk, right? Next year we talk and, and raise a glass. Next year for sure. I, I I I am scheduled to to be in New York once a year. Unfortunately, it didn't happen last year. Don't know if it will happen this year, but um, and you know where to reach me. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the book is the money plot by Professor Frederick Kaufman, A History of Currency's Power to Enchant, Control, and Manipulate. Uh, it has been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much for, for the insights and for the knowledge. Thank you, Kareem. Real pleasure.